0: I'm Cameron Silsby, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the series God and the Whole Person. Since the fall, competing stories have been told about what's good and true and what isn't. Often we think of stories that are counter to the way of Jesus as coming from things like other people, religions, culture at large, and media. But what if these stories first originate deep within us? This teaching has been re-recorded in the studio due to technical difficulties during the gathering. My oldest daughter, Posey, is about to turn six. She's getting to the age where we can start watching movies geared toward an older audience. Her first not-made-for-kids live-action movie was the remake of Walter Mitty with Ben Stiller. I enjoyed the movie, and she seemed to enjoy the first hour-ish, and then we paused it, and she became a bit restless and finished it the next day. She liked it. As a parent, though, the most important question to ask is, when are we going to show her Star Wars? the original trilogy, of course. It's a great trilogy, obviously ranked in order from best to worst as Return of the Jedi, The Empire Strikes Back, and A Distant Third, A New Hope. Now, before I go on, just a heads up, I will be giving spoilers away to these 40-year-old movies. So if you still haven't seen them and want to remain spoiler-free, now is a good time to just skip ahead on the podcast about two minutes from this point. You've been warned. The moment I'm most anticipating Posey seeing, experiencing, and, you know, reacting to is the big reveal in The Empire Strikes Back, where Darth Vader says to Luke, I'm sure you know. It's so ingrained into our culture that I need to make sure Posey watches the movies before that twist gets spoiled. But oh man, what what a moment, what agony, despair, and denial, and rage in Luke. It really hits well. Good job, George Lucas. I remember seeing it as a kid. I don't clearly remember the first time, but I remember the subsequent times. I resonated deeply with Luke. My dad left my family when I was about seven or so. He would be back someday, I was told. I loved him and missed him deeply. He was a good guy in my mind, but absent. But I remember very vividly of a few years later when stories about my dad started coming out, my mom sat me down in our living room on the couch. And explained to me that actually my dad was a bad guy who had done awful things. And just like that in my mind, my dad turned from a good guy into a bad guy. I had a Darth Vader dad. I wasn't the most insightful kid, but I remember watching that scene and thinking to myself, that's just like me. So I became a Star Trek fan. Actually, I did, but I still remain a fan of Star Wars I think I loved Return of the Jedi, most because it seemed the deepest to me. Luke is having to process and struggle through the the shame of having Darth Vader as a dad, fearing that he might become like his own dad, and fearing that his dad may be lost for good. And that resonated with me. Luke's story and my story. The things I thought were true about myself and my life. Turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. This is the second week of our series entitled God and the Whole Person, and we're taking time to talk through how we respond to God with our whole person, which is our soul and mind and body. I'd encourage you to listen to the first week's teaching if you missed it. This is Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. I'm disappointed in how our culture has sucked the life out of this story, particularly whether it's literal or figurative, 6,000 years old, or playing out over like a billion years. Those debates have deadened the vibrancy and impact impact of uh, this story. Every religion or philosophical worldview or ideology or even just any individual that I know of acknowledges that something is not quite right in the world. Something needs to be different. Something needs fixing. They all have some type of answer to the question, what is wrong in the world? The Bible answers the question by telling a story about a talking serpent, which sounds so out there and detached from reality as we know it. And yet, this story, whether symbolic or literal, is beautiful literature that rings with truth. It's a story that has spoken deeply to and captured the imaginations of humans across the globe for at least 3,000 years, if not longer. But before we talk through this text, we'd be doing ourselves a great disservice by not looking at the previous verse right before the story in chapter 3. For context, the creator God had just finished his crowning achievement of creation, which is humans. They are especially gifted to be image bearers of God, who has delegated authority to them to care for his creation. And tucked into the end of the creation story, and right before the fall, there's this verse. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Sounds a little weird, right? But if you were an ancient Israelite reading this story, the bizarre thing would be that someone could be naked and not feel shame. The exposure of a person's naked body would have typically filled the exposed person with shame, along with anyone who would have witnessed the person exposed. But we need to do a little work around this idea of shame before moving forward. Uh, I'm personally fascinated by shame. I've really enjoyed reading books about it, listening to podcasts, doing research for seminary papers, and seeing it show up all over the scriptures. It took me a few years of nerding out on this idea of shame to realize why it's so fascinating to me. In large part, it's most likely because shame was the air I breathed growing up. It was a near constant experience as I navigated a Darth Vader dad within a a fundamentalist Christian culture in the 90s and 2000s. It made so much sense of my experience growing up. But even as I keep using this word shame, let me ask you this. Is shame a good or bad thing? The correct answer is yes. Typically in our culture, it's exclusively regarded as a bad thing. It's something that if you have it, then you need to do something to stop having it. But what is it? Well, the way it works in our brains is that it's a feeling, an emotion. If you were to put words to the feeling, it could be described as painful embarrassment, a feeling of being terribly lacking, otherness, unworthiness, self-loathing. The painful thought that There's something messed up, something fundamentally wrong about me. It can be in response to something we do. It can be in response to something that is done to us. It can be in response to our physicality, how our body works or doesn't, what it looks like or doesn't look like, skin color, eye color or hair color, how our voice sounds, how good our body is at something or isn't good at something. We can feel shame as we assume people think certain things about us, even if our assumptions don't reflect reality. Shame weaves itself into the thoughts we believe about ourselves. It infects the stories we think about ourselves and others. Our culture typically says, stop feeling shame. The feeling of shame is trapping you. Break free from it. But maybe it's not as clear-cut as that. Psychiatrist Kurt Thompson, who does work merging neuroscience and spiritual formation, writes, quote, shame as a neurophysiological phenomenon is not bad in and of itself. It is rather our system's way of warning of impossible impending abandonment. I'm going to be quoting Kurt Thompson a lot, and it comes from his book, The Soul of Shame. I'd highly recommend this for you to read, especially if this shame stuff piques your interest. So shame may actually be an appropriate emotion to feel. It's an emotion that our brains are hardwired to experience. Researchers guess that shame is first experienced by children between the ages of 15 and 18 months old, probably in response to correction or a look from a parent. You can feel shame before you have the words to describe it. Feeling shame is not necessarily bad or good. Shame could be an appropriate response to the possibility of rejection or abandonment. You may feel shame for acting in destructive ways. You might feel it when a person you are somehow connected to or identify with has a destructive behavior come to light. But just because you feel shame does not mean you have sinned or done something wrong. In fact, to totally rid yourself of shame means you'd probably have to be dead since your brain is hardwired to experience it. And while shame is a feeling, it's a feeling that influences us. It tells us stories about ourselves that can be hard to articulate but are nonetheless felt. The painful awareness of a marriage on the rocks with the shame story saying to you, you're a screw-up just like your parents'. The subtle, deep sensation of humiliation as you walk by people. The shame story whispering to you, your body is so disgusting. The shaking hands from anger rising in you when your friend texts you to bail on your plans together. Shame is there to say to you, see, nobody actually cares about you. Shame is a feeling and shame tells a story. We respond to feelings of shame in different ways, but two typical behaviors that those feelings push us towards are judgment and hiding. Now, by judgment, I don't mean the necessary wise act of discerning right from wrong. The kind of judgment I'm talking about manifests manifests itself in contempt, condemnation, or criticizing ourselves and or others. It's an attack response sometimes not even harsh, but can masquerade as objective perceptions of ourselves or others. We love to tell ourselves we're being objective, especially when we're reacting against the shame story. Thinking we're being objective can make us feel strong and powerful. Shame makes us feel weak and vulnerable. The other hallmark of shame is hiding. Again, Kurt Thompson writes, quote, When we experience shame, we tend to turn away from others because the prospect of being seen or known by another carries the anticipation of shame being intensified or reactivated. However, the very act of turning away while temporarily protecting and relieving us from our feeling, ironically simultaneously reinforces the very shame we are attempting to avoid. Notably, we do not necessarily realize this to be happening. We're just trying to survive the moment. Our synapses fire, the painful feeling rises up, and we typically either attack or hide. Either way, relational alienation and separation happen. I can't stress this enough. Reacting to shame in the way humans typically do with attacking or hiding creates relational alienation and separation. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through this. Back to Genesis chapter 2. Verse 25 says, remember, Adam and his, and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. A way we could understand this line of text could be to very loosely translate it as, Adam and his wife were totally exposed and felt completely safe. That was the world God created and intended for us. Let's look now at Genesis 3. Read with me Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If you hear these verses and your mind goes to questions about how literal the story is, the age of the earth, evolution, and all that jazz, go ahead and just set those questions aside. They're valid. They're valid questions, but we're not covering them. Uh, instead, we're going to take this story at face value and treat it as a story that has something valuable to say to us. The serpent creature, who the scriptures later identify as the Satan, is a spiritual being in opposition to God. Jesus says the Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Simply put, the serpent is a bad guy. And since this story is well known in our culture, we know that this serpent has come to fool Eve, to trick her, to expose her as not smart or wise or whatever, to expose her as not enough. Eve responds to the snake by recounting more or less what God had said about eating from the tree. The story she seems to be telling as she recounts what God has said is something along the lines of, God is protecting us by saying not to eat from the tree. Now the serpent responds, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent tells a different story. Actually, God is holding out on you. God doesn't think you're good enough to eat from this tree. God doesn't think you're good enough to eat from this tree. Eve, you're an idiot. God wants to hold back from you. God is making you out to be a fool. How embarrassing. You are not enough to God. So Eve uses the analytic left side of her brain to re-examine what's going on. In the text, it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Eve observes the tree, comes to an objective opinion of it, and eats from it. Behind this supposed objectivity is the shame story of the serpent. Eve, you are not enough. Can you remember the typical psychological responses to shame? Judgment and hiding. Look down at verse 7 of of Genesis chapter 3. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves, which is hiding behavior. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And now there we have judgment behavior. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. And there's more judgment behavior. The immediate result of the fall was shame. Adam and Eve hide. Then they blame others, casting judgment on others for their own actions. Most often in our culture, when we think of sin, we think of breaking rules and being guilty. God, the judge, presiding over the courtroom, declaring that we have broken the law. We are guilty as charged. And that's not wrong. The scriptures use all sorts of legal ideas, courtroom imagery, and the idea of guilt. It's all in the scriptures. At the same time, the the scriptures have a lot more to say to us about shame than guilt. The Old Testament speaks to shame 10 times more than it does to guilt. The New Testament speaks of shame four times more than guilt. It seems like God is really concerned about shame. It seems like the story of the fall is a story of shame. In the story, though, God responds to the hiding by seeking out Adam and Eve. The experience of shame has driven them to relationally hide from God, so he goes looking for them. God invites confession by asking questions. Confession invites vulnerability and relational reconnection. Not simply to, you know, quote unquote get rid of sin, God wants to reestablish relational connection with Adam and Eve. There are, however, horrific consequences to due to Adam and Eve's actions. Most people know how this story ends with Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden, but we often overlook this detail in verse twenty-one of chapter three. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Remember, Adam and Eve have been horribly exposed and have tried to fashion something that we might, that, or that might cover their exposure. God cares about their painful exposure; He covers their shame. And here we can pause to learn a a bit more about shame. In our culture, the opposite of shame is typically conceptualized as confidence, courage, or self-esteem. You need to stop the feeling of shame by changing something about your thinking or behavior. And that's not bad. It could be really helpful. It makes sense of shame within our individualistic context. It's your problem, so you go ahead and fix it. But in cultures that prioritize the group over the individual, also known as collectivistic cultures, which the majority of the world is, by the way, I I think they have something to teach us when it comes to dealing with shame. Remember, shame is a feeling we have as individuals, but it plays out in relationships with others. We either attack or hide from others because of shame. And those around us either confirm or negate it by how we perceive they treat us. And on top of that dynamic, they also react to us based on their own shame. It can be a tangled mess. Collectivistic cultures can navigate this with more skill than our individualistic culture. They have ways, however imperfect, for dealing with shame as a group. In collectivistic cultures, the opposite of shame isn't simply feeling better about yourself. It's honor. It's dignity, respect, being valuable or worthy. And honor plays out both in how we view and feel about ourselves, but also in how we are viewed by those around us or even by how we're viewed by God. So when God covers Adam and Eve, it's not just about survival and the harsh elements of a fallen world or a type of symbolic legal covering because they have transgressed God's law. It is a gesture of dignity and value God extends to Adam and Eve. God honors them even though they've acted shamefully. God doesn't just cover their shame with clothes. When the Creator God makes clothes for you to wear— he is honoring you. God covers their shame with honor. Right now, I'd love to spend time hitting some different stories in the scriptures that show this kind of consistent motif of God's intention to cover shame, but this teaching would be a couple of hours long. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10 now. In the first week of this series, Josh Hold from this text and did a lot of good work in it. Go back and listen to the teaching if you haven't yet. It was great. I'm going to piggyback on what he did for that teaching in this text. Look down with me at Mark chapter 10. I'm going to start reading in verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting By the roadside begging. Bartimaeus is a blind man in a culture where physical limitations such as these were deeply shameful. Typically, something like blindness would be attributed to God's response to someone's sin. So in one sense, they deserved their condition. Their sin was on display for all to see. They were painfully exposed. And he has to beg to survive. Those around him would have supported him in ways familiar to us with modern-day panhandlers. To give money to a beggar could gain you a small degree of honor in the community, which could be advantageous, which is not a foreign concept to us. If you see a person doing something kind for a homeless person, you may think to yourself, wow, they're a good person. When you do that, you're ascribing honor to that person. And if that good person so happens to run a small business, well, you're probably more inclined to take your business to a good person. Honor in a community matters. Throwing some coins to Bartimaeus is one way people could gain a degree of honor, but beyond that, he's just not valuable or worthy or with dignity in the eyes of the community. He's a sinner that has gotten his just consequence for sin, a shame story. Bartimaeus is begging, begging while Jesus walks through town. To the people around, Jesus is some type of prophet or maybe perhaps even the Messiah. He is being honored by the crowd as someone important and valuable, someone worthy of having a crowd follow him. There's anticipation and energy in the air as Jesus is passing by Bartimaeus. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. It's hard to feel this scene as, as it was probably felt by those in the crowd, but go with me for a second, I'll do do my best to help us feel this. And, and then once we do, I think we'll better understand the dynamics between Bartimaeus and the crowd. Think back to a group situation where somebody shared too much information or said something that was inappropriate. Maybe it's with a group of friends or with your Van City community one evening or with your family around a holiday meal. Maybe it's at work with coworkers or at school with classmates. The person says something and everyone kind of freezes for a couple of heartbeats. We usually name those situations as awkward. But think about how a situation like that feels. Maybe you feel hot in your face, uh, a pit in your stomach. Maybe you feel embarrassed, nervous, angry or annoyed. Maybe you get a strong urge to make a joke to cut the tension or you want to scoff these would be shame responses. Someone else's oversharing or inappropriate comment has triggered the part of your brain that feels shame. Their shame, in the form of what they have said, has caused you to feel shame. In this text, Bartimaeus is the one who has just overshared by drawing attention to himself when he cried out to Jesus. He draws attention to his own shame, the crowd then feels shame in response to him and judges him and tells him to hide. They rebuke him and tell him to be quiet. In no way is it appropriate for Bartimaeus to call out to such an honored, dignified, valuable, valuable person as Jesus. To do so would tarnish Jesus. The, gra- the crowd gets it and tells him to shut up. And by doing so, they reinforce his shame story. He's too much of a screw-up to deserve Jesus' time and attention. He is not enough for Jesus to care about. But there's something about Bartimaeus, some type of tenacity or resiliency that allows him to call out again despite the shaming from the crowd. Maybe he's fed up. Maybe he's so numb to the shame at this point that the prospects of more don't mean much to him. Maybe he's become that desperate. Whatever it is, he shouts again. He refuses to hide. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. I really can't do justice to describe how powerful it is for Jesus to stop and acknowledge him. But just look at how the crowd changes their tune. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. All of a sudden, the shaming voices are silenced, and the crowd makes way for him to reach Jesus. By acknowledging him, Jesus has bestowed a significant amount of honor onto Bartimaeus, to the point where the crowd immediately treats and speaks to him differently. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. Have you ever had someone you look up to, like a mentor, teacher, peer, or family member, sincerely ask your opinion about something? Your opinion matters to them. How good that feels when somebody does that. Jesus transfers dignity and worth to Bartimaeus by asking him a question. Bartimaeus' thoughts and opinions matter to Jesus. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. What does Jesus ascribe the healing to? Go, your faith has healed you. Jesus honors Bartimaeus by giving his faith credit for his own healing. Jesus didn't highlight his own power or ability to heal Bartimaeus. He highlights the faith of Bartimaeus. We focus on the restoration of Bartimaeus' sight as the focal point of the story. And I don't think that's wrong, but I think we easily miss the fact that Bartimaeus' healing actually began when he cried out to Jesus and Jesus acknowledged him. His shame was healed. We are living in our own shame stories after the fall. You and I attack and hide from ourselves, others, and God because of our shame. The kind of story the serpent told in the garden garden to Eve still happens, even at this moment. What shame story is shouting loudly at you at this moment or during this week? are at this stage of your life. My shame story with my Darth Vader dad? You're going to be as bad as your dad. It's only a matter of time. If I were in the place of Bartimaeus, the crowd would be shouting to me that I was disgusting, evil, a wolf in sheep's clothing. They would keep their distance from me. In real life, when I have perceived or anticipated people sending me These messages, whether with their words or actions, I've either hidden or attacked. Mostly, I've hidden. But I'm grateful that out of desperation, when I've called out to Jesus, he's responded to me and acknowledged me. In the form of his healing presence, in the form of my wife, family, and friends who treat me with value and as if I'm worthy of their love and care, It's come in the form of counselors who have sat with me as I, shaking with fear, said my shame stories out loud to them. Them sitting there as a presence that honored me and patiently walked through the the pain I started speaking out loud. I've had a crowd of people in my life who have shown me honor, urging me forward to Jesus. And it would be dishonest to say that today it's all better here's my success story, now you just do it it like me, neat and tidy like that. I can tell it's not all better because it's still something a part of me would rather not say to you all. It's still a bit embarrassing. I feel a bit exposed sharing a story like this with you all. But I do understand that a shame story like this is now an avenue through which I connect with Jesus and others. It's part of my relationship with Jesus that he has flipped on its head, where once there was alienation from myself, others, and him, now I have a greater degree of connection. What's the shame story shouting at you? We all have at least one. Maybe you can name it. Or maybe it's inarticulate. You just know that you are extremely sensitive and reactive in certain situations or with certain people, or that you've already already hidden yourself away from certain things or people because you don't know what else to do, Shrinking, uh, choosing to shrink your life in order to avoid the pain. Perhaps you've attacked all the shaming voices in your life. You've hurt those around you and pushed them away in order to protect yourself from the shame you feel. Or maybe your shame story is just too painful to acknowledge to yourself so you don't once again from kurt thompson quote hiding is the natural response to shame this is especially true when we experience it in a toxic form but most of our hiding takes place in the everyday comings and goings of life we hide from everyone not least ourselves in every imaginable way furthermore All the hiding I do from others begins with all the smoke and mirrors I employ within my own mind. There are multiple parts of myself that I don't want to know. It would be too shaming. But enter in the God who calls out to you, where are you? Who looks to invite you into renewed connection with him and others, to come out of hiding, to stop attacking the God who will cover your shame with his honor. It's risky to deal with your shame. It's vulnerable. It feels scary. How will people respond? How will you respond? How will God respond? I love Kurt Thompson's explanation of vulnerability. Quote, To be vulnerable is to recognize that we are at the mercy of those whose intentions we cannot guarantee and who can leave us alone. It's risky to deal with your shame because you might be abandoned. Others may reinforce your shame story. God may not show up. The painful experience may be increased. The serpent was right. You are not enough. And so you hide. You stuff it down. You reframe the people and events in your life to justify your attacking and hiding. You try to feel safe by not being exposed, by not being vulnerable. You're not alone. It's the story of humanity since the fall. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Could you imagine that? All of your life, your actions, thoughts, desires, hopes, fears, what's been done to you and what you've done, all of it exposed. Can you imagine being totally exposed and not feeling shame? You are completely transparent with others, and you feel safe. What would one step in that direction look like? What would it start to look like to come out of hiding, to stop attacking yourself or others? And then I wonder about this. Are we a church community that ushers people towards, toward Jesus with honor and dignity, Or do we reinforce their shame story by how we talk to them, treat them, and even just look at them? We can be the kind of crowd that ushers people to Jesus, cheering them on as they approach Jesus in their shame. Or we can be the crowd that demands people to be quiet and hide. Which one have you been? Which one would you like to be? I think that's why gossip, slander, and whatever we try to excuse as venting is so destructive. It's reinforcing serpent stories, shame stories about the person, and is telling those around us that they are in the midst of the crowd that would not be sympathetic towards them. They will be attacked and told to hide, and so often we preemptively do. But that's not who God is. With Adam and Eve, with a seemingly insignificant blind man on the side of the road with you and with me the king of the universe king jesus is before us you can cry out to him you can start there he will honor you Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.